0: Welcome to Coach Life 2.0, the podcast that offers a behind-the-scenes look at life as a coach. Through the personal stories and first-hand accounts of experienced coaches, this podcast offers valuable tips and tricks for embracing your own coaching journey and learning how to lead yourself and others more authentically. This week's episode features Matt Holmberg. Matt is entering into his 15th season with the Queen's University women's hockey program and his 12th season as head coach. Queen's has made the playoffs in all 12 seasons with Holmberg at the helm and they have the second highest winning percentage in the OUA over that span. He holds the Gales women's hockey record for most regular season and playoff wins by a coach with 203 and has also won numerous OUA Coach of the Year titles during his tenure. Matt has led the Gales to two OUA championship titles, two OUA silver medals, and a bronze medal at the U Sports National Women's Hockey Championship in 2011. The success of the Gales women's hockey program goes beyond the ice. His team also has a 100% graduation rate among its players, and in 2019-20, his team set a program record with a cumulative GPA of 3.539. Matt is a high-performance, level 2 certified coach who served as the U-Sport Women's Hockey Coaches Association president from 2013 to 2016. He is also associated with Hockey Canada and the OWHA at various events and camps, both on and off the ice. Matt's story is a unique one. A native of Pembroke, Ontario, he graduated from Queen's Law in 1997 and practiced for 13 years before transitioning into his career as a hockey coach. He is a father, a husband, and someone that I respect immensely in the hockey community. Here's our conversation. All right, Matt. Thank you for joining me today.
1: Flattered to be here. Honestly, MJ, this is a great podcast. I've I've listened to a bunch of them. I, I have some very tough acts to follow. I think, and I think it's a <laughs> I think it's a good sign of the level of respect that you have in the hockey community that um, you know you've been able to get so many great people on here.
0: Well, thank you very much for that. And speaking of respect, I mean, I'm excited to have an opportunity to talk with you, you know, having coached against you for four seasons at Ryerson, I always respected the way that you did things and respected your program and your approach. So I'm really looking forward to hearing a bit more about your coaching journey. And with that in mind, could you kind of share the story about how you first got involved in coaching?
1: Sure. Um, you know, I, uh, like most Canadians, I think I, I, uh, I loved hockey from a very young age. I came from sort of a smaller town in, in uh, northern Ontario. I love playing. I uh, love the experience of playing. But I think I might have been a, even a bit deeper than even the average Canadian kid. I, I was immersed in the stats. I was immersed in the trivia. Um, I read all the books on the history of the game and, and collected tons of hockey cards. And um, so it was more than just the playing part. I was already fully immersed in it, I think. And my dad was also my coach throughout most of my minor hockey career. And I think without really knowing it at the time, that started to lay some of the groundwork, planted maybe a little bit of a seed. As a player, I think I was always just good enough to barely make the good teams. So I was was the perpetual third or fourth liner, sometimes even a 13th forward, I remember one year. And um, I think I could skate. I understood the game. Um, my hands weren't quite at the level, I think, that, that it needed to be. Um, so I, I certainly learned at a, an early age about role acceptance, um, the value of giving yourself over for the good of the team and, and those aspects of it. I went to, to university in Ottawa back when tryouts were more of a thing and, and made the varsity team, but again, third or fourth line. The coach at the time, great hockey guy, his perspective was a bit more or his focus was a bit more on hockey than school. And I knew at that point I wasn't going to turn pro. I wasn't going to make a living out of playing hockey. So I left the team very early. So here I am, someone, I'm 19 years old, loving the game of hockey, not wanting to give it up. And so I approached the Minor Hockey uh, Association in Ottawa um, about coaching. And uh, they gave me an Adam House League team. And I, I, I lovingly describe it as the team of misfits because I was the new coach late on the scene. And so they gave me, it was the third, the Bad Apples a third of new people that had just moved into the community and a third of the girls that wanted to play because there were no dating myself, but there were no, uh, organized female leagues at the time. And so I took what I perceived to be, you know, a a positive coaching approach and, and loved it. And the team did well. And, um, I think that really planted the seed as well in terms of coaching females. So then I went to Queens for law school, uh, became a lawyer, practiced in, back in my hometown, Pembroke, for a few years, and then moved back to Kingston, practiced there, and always just sort of kept my, my toe in the water, some house league here, running some clinics there. I had a career, and I never really thought I'd make a career out of coaching. It was kind of tough to break into the, the boys' side of it, you know, without having played at a high level or knowing too many people at, on that side. It would have been tough to crack, and there really weren't that many full-time jobs on the women's side, so I, I didn't really think that there was anything more than what I was doing. And then in 2006, I got an opportunity to be an assistant coach with the Queens women's team, and um, that's when everything changed.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And okay, so you got to start at Queens in 2006. How did that opportunity come about for you?
1: Um, so um, the the then coach and I just happened to be paired together at a uh, a local charity golf tournament, and we just got to chatting. And uh, he was in need of an assistant coach, and uh, I was an individual who wanted to stay in the game and was looking for other opportunities, maybe coaching wise. And, uh, and we connected and uh, went from there.
0: Awesome. Okay, so you got that opportunity in 2006. I mean, obviously the love for the game started at a young age, understanding it was more than just, you know, the traditional Canadian kid who played because it was the mm-hmm. national sport. But what's kept, or what's kept you in the game of hockey for all of these years? It's one thing to have an interest and get, you know, your toe in the water. But now, all these years later, you're still at it. It's your career. It's your profession. Why coaching?
1: I guess there's a whole melting pot of reasons. I, I think all the cliches. Um, I love the game. Um, I'm comfortable in a leading role. Um, I'm competitive. I do want to, you know, have an opportunity to, uh, to teach life skills. I think I think hockey, I know through personal experience, that hockey can uh, really be a great teacher of life skills. So work ethic, character, humility, uh, resilience, preparation, positivity, teamwork. I think I was also perhaps unknowingly following in my father's footsteps a little bit. Um, So that was always in the background. But honestly, if it wasn't coaching women's hockey at Queen's University, I, I, I don't know if we'd be talking. Like, I think it's, I think my story is very specific and why I'm still in coaching. I, I think there's a few factors that are unique to unique to me. Like, I being a Queen's grad, I, I, uh, I drank the Kool-Aid. I love the university. It's uh, everything about the spirit uh, there, uh, the sense of community. I believe in the school and I believe in the opportunities that it creates for people because I've seen it firsthand and lived it. I love the city of Kingston. Love it, love it, love it. And then I noticed a difference in, in the mentality between men's and women's hockey. You know, there, there's no, we're working on it, but there's still no million dollar contracts for, for females to play. And so I, like I remember the, the very first practice I ran as assistant coach, you know, blew the whistle. They all skated over there. Everyone was eager and keen and there was no ego um, or, you know, I already know it, coach just get me to the show kind of an attitude. And I, I found that so refreshing Um, but very unique, right. To, to the women's side. And then I, you know, when I was, I I spent three years as as an assistant coach with the team. And during that time, I I think I made good use of that time. I, I got to know the players. I would sit down and try to connect with them, but, but also just ask them questions, um, you know, about their development and, and what their goals were, you know, what their struggles were. And I think that really affected my perspective on coaching. So, Again, while I think I I, I tick all the boxes in terms of some of the cliches why people stay in, in coaching, I think that my experience was also unique to the time and place that that I found myself. Mm-hmm. And and I've stayed in it ever since. I Got the opportunity to become a head coach, and and uh, you know, I, and none of those reasons have really changed. You know, I, I did want the opportunity to try to build a program at Queens that that the university and the athletics department could be proud of. Um, that provided me with with you know, pride and, and obviously being able to try my best to bring in players of strong character, but also do what we can to make them better people and and, uh, and that ones that can reflect fondly on their time within the program. And so that, uh, that th- those aspects have never changed.
0: Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. And I think the other unique thing about your coaching journey, you know, now as you share some of the details is... You know, you had an opportunity to play at that collegiate level at the university level for a bit. And a lot of times when players transition into coaching, it's usually at that elite level. Like it might be with younger kids, but it's at like that double A or AAA A level. And what I think is interesting about your story is like you first got in at the house league level, like at the development level. And that can be a great benefit, right? Like, what do you think were maybe some of the benefits of starting your coaching journey at that level, as opposed to jumping in at the high level right out of the gates.
1: Yeah, I think it was relatively risk free, right? I don't think the expectations, particularly the the teams that I I was given early on, there was no expectations. Parents were just yeah. happy to, you know, let's drop the kids off and hopefully, you know, they don't hurt each other and they have fun and and uh, away we go. And so even back then, as I reflect on it, I think I had a coaching philosophy that may have been a little bit different than the times, uh, and I can again. Give my my father a lot of credit for that. I'm not a I'm not a yeller other than positive encouragement. I don't motivate through fear or anything like that. I ask a lot of questions. I think part of it too is my philosophy on the game of hockey. It's a very chaotic game, and I I choose not to try to micromanage every second and every inch that a player is on the ice. So I think there's a lot of figuring it out and and creativity that's involved. And um, you know, so I think a lot of those things I I, I was able to just sort of. Test the water with those coaching styles, even though there's a lot of other coaches at the time um, that may have been a bit more dictatorship style, uh, as as was largely the case back in the day. And so, yeah, I think I was able to, to try things out risk-free, which was, in in hindsight, uh, pretty beneficial.
0: Yeah, that's it's such a great point, right? Like, I think about my first year officially coaching a team or head coaching a team by myself. It was the Willowdale Red Wings. It was a midget double-A team. But the circumstances under which I came to coach that team, like the coach had stepped away, they needed somebody to step in. The team had kind of been a bunch of people thrown together last minute. So it wasn't necessarily that the expectations were high. So I was able to come in. And I mean, it was a different situation. But much like you, I was able to kind of test the waters. And I didn't feel that overwhelming pressure that a lot of coaches feel to perform you know, and to be extrinsically validated based on your win-loss record. And it's a really interesting point, right? Because you think a lot of players, when they transition into coaching, sometimes you lose a lot of great potential coaches after that first or second year because the environment is so stressful and demands so much of you. And if you don't have an opportunity to learn and develop and grow and try things out and enjoy the experience, it can push you away pretty quickly.
1: Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, I mean everyone's experience is different, and everyone's journey is different. But uh, I, I'm certainly fortunate to have the opportunity to uh, to try some things out and and uh, and fail um, without much of a spotlight.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Okay, and and you kind of alluded to it earlier, but you practiced law from 1999 to 2012, right? So over a decade. Are there any particular transferable skills that you believe have benefited you as a hockey coach or contributed to your success personally and your team based on based on that experience?
1: Yeah, I, I think so. It, it uh, you know, I, I sort of joke about it sometimes. It seems like my my law degree and and ten ish years as a lawyer was the most expensive and complex coaching education that that anyone's ever had, I guess. But I, I think that there are tons of Really good transferable skills, or at least I felt so. You know, uh, I mean, I'll just start with professionalism, um, ethics. I mean, those areas. Although some people might joke in the lawyer, that's not the case. But those areas were drilled into me, and and I took very, very seriously. I think, uh, I think, you know, just developing or continuing to develop a good work ethic. I was, I was a civil litigator, uh, so I was doing a lot of trials, a lot of family law, a lot of criminal law, a lot of civil litigation, and so. You know, I, I would have a trial coming up in two weeks, and so I'd spend a week preparing for it. And while certainly there are some differences, very, um, very all, all similar to just preparing for a game that weekend, right? Like you're preparing for a competition, if I can, if I can put it that way. Um, Learn to think on my feet, certainly in court. Learn to give uh, oral presentation. Um, I'm comfortable standing in front of the team, comfortable speaking with the refs, that sort of thing. Um, oral persuasion. Remaining calm under pressure. Right. I mean, I I was involved in some pretty high profile cases that, that involved people potentially going to jail, losing lots of money, losing their kids. I mean, those are real life situations and uh, having to think on your feet with those things at stake um, really puts things in perspective. Um, So when you, when you then transfer it over to hockey, while there's a lot at stake at the end of the day, it is a game. And um, I think I'm able to stay relatively calm under pressure and, and, uh, solid level of emotional control. I lost a lot of cases. I'll, I'll be honest. I didn't win every case. I wasn't one of those lawyers that went, you know, 200 and 0. So dealing with loss. And like I said, I mean, some of those losses dealt with people going to jail, for example. I mean, that's huge. That's not just yeah. like, okay, you lost to to Ryerson in this game, which is also tough to take sometimes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it it's, uh, it, it, you know, we're a real life situation. So I, I learned to deal with loss. So some resiliency, managing people. Um, I had an office and some staff and then just perspective again, you know, uh, so fortunate to be able to, to have a career in, in hockey, right. And, and just, just, again, constantly reminding myself how lucky I am to be here.
0: Wow. Well, that is definitely a great spokesperson for transitioning from being a lawyer to a coach, because it sounds like there's a ton of parallels, but it it really is amazing, right? Like it's, it's just really cool how many parallels there are and how many things you've been able to transfer from your practice as a lawyer to your practice as a coach. What about like um in terms of human tendencies, right? Like the way people think or the, the way people react and respond. So I know you're talking about how you present yourself and how you communicate But is there anything there in terms of being able to kind of have like an emotional intelligence when it comes to interacting with people or or knowing what people tend to do in certain situations and using that to help you facilitate?
1: Uh, I suppose, you know, in my undergrad, I took a lot of psychology and social science. I've always been interested in in those areas. And so I think that uh, I had already developed a, a good baseline in terms of some of those skills but i I absolutely have have continued to learn in that area by by coaching. there's that that is that is an area that uh, is is you're constantly growing and evolving. So so I, I think I had a good start, but uh, we're still working on it.
0: Well, coaching is certainly a continued work in in progress. And actually, on that note, you know, if you were to look back at your first few years of coaching and compare them to where you are now, what is it that you would say you've most changed your mind on when it comes to your coaching philosophy or your approach to coaching?
1: Uh, yeah, great question. My, I think my story, once I became a head coach, I think my story might be a little bit different. I know that there's some coaches, and we talked about it earlier, that, that start, you know, learn some life lessons and have sort of grown into the coach that they are now. And uh, mine is a bit more of a sine wave, if I can use the analogy. I mean, the, the opportunity for me to coach, to be a head coach, came upon rather suddenly in 2009. And so it was it was late in the summer and Queens really didn't have a chance to, to spend a lot of time searching for a new coach. Um, so they approached me and they said, well, you know, could you just do it for the year? We'll, we'll figure this out after next year. So it was still a part-time job. I was still a full-time lawyer. So I talked to the players and they were they encouraged me to do it. And, and um, so I took that pre-existing philosophy that I talked about and then, and then some of the things that I had learned from the players themselves over the past three years and, and then just entered that one year risk free. It's almost like I was taking over the house league team again because I wasn't thinking that I would leave the law. I thought this was for one year. Um, there were no expectations on me, really. Um, and so I just set some really simple priorities. I said uh, I wanted to run a professional program. I wanted to foster positive relationships between the players. I wanted to work on my connections with the players I was happy to admit my shortcomings, my mistakes that I didn't know it all, that I was working my way through it as we went um, and be accountable to the players. I set very simple uh, values, honesty, positive attitudes, work ethic, and then tried to keep them accountable to it and then just to have fun. And that was it. And so notice there's no focus on winning there or, or uh, you know, we had systems for sure and we worked on skill development, but, um, you know, those weren't the drivers and, then we set a record for most wins in a season, right? Mm. And uh, so Queens asked me back for a second year. And so still part-time. And so I I, I said, okay, one more year, just one more. Um, it was very busy. and Because even though it was described as full-time, we both know that it's it's a full-time gig, right? So um, I kept the same philosophy. And then we won the OUA championship and won a bronze at nationals. And uh, so um, they asked me to become full-time in the summer of 2011. And I'll pause here for a second and just again give my my wife Kristen a ton of credit because um at the time I was a successful lawyer and and you know whatever salary comes with that and uh came home on a Friday and told them that Queens was looking to to make this full time and right away without hesitating she said well you've got to take it and I said why and she said because I see how passionate about it you are I, I see you on days when you're doing hockey stuff and I see you on days when you're doing lawyering stuff and and there's a big difference. And uh, I said, well, let's think about it. So after a very long weekend and several bottles of red wine, she was still singing the same tune on Sunday night. And um, and so I took it. And, uh, you know, we won another uh, OUA championship in 2013 and then uh, OUA silver in 2014. So, you know, those first five years, uh, we we, Queens had had a fair bit of success and um, it wasn't perfect, but we had a pretty strong culture, I thought. And then here's where the sine wave happens, because there was a slight change and, and part of it was conscious, part of it not. But, you know, I started to get some other people that were starting to, you know, latch on and maybe suggest there were other ways that I should be doing things a bit more of the old school way of thinking. Um, I described my coaching philosophy to them and they're like, well, why would you, you know, be a servant leader? Like a coach shouldn't be carrying the stick bags. What are you what are you talking about? And, and you know, some of that sort of sunk in. And then, you know, I think there was also a lot more internal pressure, right? So now I was in running a program that was expected to win. And, you know, it was hard. We're, we're all human. And it was so hard to shake that feeling of being called either a fluke or a fraud if we started to lose. And so no matter how confident I was in my approach, that I, I, I did have that sliver of, yeah, geez, maybe there's something different I should be doing. And I hate to say it, but winning started to become more of a, a priority or a driver, and I started to work more on my competency, the X's and O's and, and whatnot, and that's, and analytics. And that's part of it, absolutely. But, and then finally, you know, I I was really struggling with the conflict between connecting with the players and showing you care w- with having to give tough feedback. And that it was becoming tougher and tougher. So, and I've reflected on this quite a bit is, you know, for a couple of years, I wasn't keeping as close eye on, on the team cohesion. I um, wasn't holding players as accountable as they should for lapses in character Uh, i started to give more ice time based on skill rather than merit um i was becoming less tolerant of mistakes i um i actually became a bit more removed from the players on the mistaken belief that it would be easier for me to give tough advice if i became more emotionally distant i still cared for them i just don't know if they knew that as, as well or as as much for a period of time. So, Mm -hmm. um, and the thing is we continued to have general success for a few years, which in a way didn't help, but I think we were starting to spin our wheels and a few things happened. And and there were some conversations that I had with players that started to shine a light on it. And and, um, there was maybe even some evidence of of a backslide starting. And even though I wasn't staying, basically I wasn't staying fully true to my values and beliefs and and maybe only a 15 to 20% slide, but it was making a difference. And so I started to reevaluate that and the interesting thing is that, uh, you know, we started to make some changes, which was good, but then two things happened more recently, even first was COVID. So in the last year, I've had a lot of time to pause and reflect, and we weren't on the ice, we weren't competing. And the, my, my main goal was the connection with the team themselves and, my, and myself. And it really brought me back. And the second thing was in March, we had our 10th, if you can believe it, our 10th anniversary of the 2011 OUA championship team. And we had a reunion, we had a zoom uh, reunion with all the players and it was great. And, and I spent a lot of time and Morgan McAfee, and I spent a lot of time preparing for that reunion. And in doing so it just brought everything back and reminded me about everything. And so, you know, it started here and, and, and in a focus on championship relationships, I got away from it for a time and now I uh, hopefully we're back up on the upswing and, and, um, making, I've really made it a focus to return to uh, those championship relationships and, and, um, you know, better understanding that need to be visi- visibly connected, show them that I cared, you know, let them in, be vulnerable. And, uh, you know, it's funny, like my story, it's almost regardless of how your coaching career started, what I just described is it's almost like it's a rite of passage. And even if you started well, you know, this this moment of truth, this this test is going to happen at some point. And uh, it's just a matter of when. So, yeah, my, my then and now, I'm actually trying to connect my then and my now back up. It's just something that happened in between the then and the now that I had to to work through.
0: Yeah. Wow. Well, let me go on record for saying that your self awareness as a coach and your ability to like identify all of that and break it down the way you did is incredible. Mm. (laughs) So, any coach out there should listen to that because I think that is probably the most underrated value for any coach to possess is that self awareness, right? And like the ability to identify. You know, what's going on with you, whether it's your strengths, whether it's your weaknesses, you know, and to reflect as well, because like you said, like it's one thing to set, to set values and goals and all of that. But how often do we actually evaluate our ability to achieve those things? Right. Because that's really where a lot of the growth occurs. So that's awesome.
1: Yeah, it's it's. I mean, I, I've been very lucky, you know, to, to be able to spend the time with this particular team and, and go through that journey. Right, and and some people are only in it for a year. I mean, uh, um, I, I it could have been very different. That could have just been one year for me, and that's it, and I never would have gone through the journey. And so, I, I'm certainly fortunate that I've had the length of time that I've had to to go through it, and and certainly hopefully come out the better coach because of it.
0: Yeah. Well, and several coaches have mentioned, you know, like the one bright spot with COVID is that it has slowed things down and it's created this space for people to do that necessary reflection. You know what I mean? Like you're not caught in the in the grind of things, day-to-day planning practices, prepping for games and all of that stuff. And I mean, in hindsight, you know, when we look back, hopefully it's something that has helped benefit a lot of coaches moving forward. But I guess maybe this will tie into some of the things that you touched on earlier, but you know, you're entering into your 15th season with Queens in September and experience certainly makes us wiser, but new challenges and adversity are a part of the job, right? So what is it that keeps you up at night as a coach? And is it different now than it was maybe in those first few years with the program?
1: Uh, yeah, you know, uh, I, I, think, Maybe some people feel that what keeps them up at night is necessarily a negative thing. To be honest with you, sometimes what keeps me up at night is is just the excitement and the passion of it. Like i'm I'm thinking about strategy or line combinations or or even practice planning. I, I enjoy that part of it. I, I enjoy mm-hmm. the the preparation part. and so sometimes it's just my mind working overtime on on positive aspects of it. But one thing that I think that that has come up in the last five to eight years, on the other side of the equation is is I do worry about the athletes, and more recently from a mental health perspective, and that that does weigh heavily on me at times. I, I've certainly been greater educated on all aspects of that over the past decade. There is a very positive, you know, groundswell of encouragement for people who are struggling to um, to openly talk about it. So there's there's both sides of that coin. But I mean, students, let alone athletes, um, just I, I just feel like there's a lot more stress, and uh, whether it be school, whether it be relationships, uh, health, family, money, racism issues, and and the effects of social media and bullying, and and then you know the pressures such as it is of being a, a varsity high performance athlete, um, and I could I could go on and on and on. But uh, you know, I'm I'm now a parent. I've got an eight year old daughter, and and maybe maybe that's maybe that's when that thing started to change because I, I certainly cared about the athletes before then, but now I can't help but think about it from a the lens of a parent as well. You know, I'm I'm very protective. I, I've got 23 other daughters that I'm responsible for, and and I also understand as I as I am a parent that I can't I can be protective and I can guide them, but I can't be there to shield them from everything. And and in fact, part of growing up is is you know experiencing failure and is experiencing some of the downsides and building that resiliency and that's really hard you know as a parent to not to be that helicopter parent and uh you know you want them to be safe all the time and and i think that a bit of that is certainly um shifted over to how i approach my players and so when i see or hear that some of them are struggling from a mental health perspective queens is great we've got tons of great resources and i and we certainly know where to direct them but it doesn't stop the fact that there are some nights when, when I'm still worried about it. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's a, it's a very real concern and much like you becoming a parent, then the concern becomes even more real because you understand the personal ties to it. Right. Not only for you as a coach, but the parents and the extended family of, of that student athlete. And like you said, a lot of it comes down to just surrounding them with the resources. I think sometimes as a coach, you can be like, feel like you're stuck because you know, you care so much, but you're not necessarily trained to help make it better. Right. So I think the biggest part is just educating yourself on where these student athletes can go to get the help they need and proactively offering them those solutions. But yeah, like there's no easy fix and it doesn't seem like, you know, the epidemic of anxiety and and all of that is going anywhere anytime soon but it's certainly a a work in progress and will continue to be so I guess just building on that you touched on it a little bit there so you became Matt the dad well into your Mm -hmm. your coaching journey are there any particular ways beyond like you said it's kind of that hyper sensitivity to the well-being of your athletes understanding that they're someone else's daughter are there any other impacts that becoming Matt the dad has had on Matt the coach Hmm.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think so. Um, I, I, I certainly consider myself very lucky to have uh, a loving and f- supporting family. And, and I certainly appreciate that uh, many don't always have the opportunity, you know, um, or family to, to do so. But, uh, you know, my I, I don't know. If you, you may not know the story. So my daughter was born in 2013. We had a pretty good playoff run that year. Uh, she was born in early March. Which you know is playoff season, and oh, uh, so we—I might get the dates wrong—not on her birthday—but we we beat Western in the OUA championship on March second. My daughter was born on March sixth, and Game one of Nationals was March eighth.
0: Oh boy! So
1: it was the craziest week of my life, and but at the same time, the most amazing week of my life, right? Yeah. And and uh, so she, and thankfully. Thankfully, uh, nationals were held in Toronto that year. So, I mean, if they had been held in UBC or PEI, that would have been that would have been difficult. So, the team went ahead on the Wednesday without me. Thankfully, we didn't play until Friday. So, I was in the hospital and and um, with my wife and daughter for a couple of days, and then Friday morning got in the car, drove to Toronto, uh, you know, with no sleep in the last seventy two hours, and got behind <laughs> the bench at two o'clock, and we were at nationals. So it was
0: oh, it was it was a
1: pretty amazing scenario, but. You know, but things shifted uh, both internally and externally um, from that day on. Um, externally, I mean, your time priorities change. You know, I've, I've got an extremely supportive wife who also has a busy career, um, formerly as a lawyer and now as a judge. And we've always supported each other's uh, careers and passions and aspirations. Um, throw in a, a child and, you know, you're, you're adding another element to that. But also internally, I think, uh, you know, I think that there's, there's now a, obviously a very deep-seated focus on on family and their needs, and uh, I think it gives you a greater perspective. I, I do believe. I hope it's made me a better coach. Um, again, like I said, not everyone has the opportunity to to have a family, and certainly there's plenty of outstanding coaches that are able to be great coaches without having a child. But I, I think it's given me that perspective, and I think you know the team. See, I don't hide my family from the team. I mean, they they they've. They've seen my daughter. They've they've met my wife. Uh, we've had them over for a barbecue. Um, they've they've all met my dad. They 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 see how important family is to me, and so certainly we you know we walk the walk from that perspective, and uh, and encourage our players to be you know connected with their families as much. So and and ultimately, my greatest desire is to have our team hockey team feel like a family. Right. So I I'm happy to let them the team into into my family from that perspective. So and I think also in terms of my relationship with the team, I think, I think I am a bit more protective. I, I think that though some lessons that you're teaching an eight year old can still apply to an 18 year old. It doesn't matter. Right. You, you're talking about yeah. being respectful, being kind, being grateful. And so, and, and then on a more positive note as well, I, there are times when I look at some of my players and uh, they're just tremendous role models. And I don't know how many times I've said to myself, man, I, I, I hope, my daughter can can grow up and be as confident as so-and-so or as strong as so-and-so or as resilient as so-and-so. And, and that's and been, that's been a great sort of bonus. She's not, she's not that interested in hockey right now, to be honest with you. Yeah. And that's okay. We're,
0: yeah. we're a little bit of everything and,
1: but that's okay. I mean, she knows her dad loves the game and, and uh, that makes her happy.
0: Yeah. Well, and you know, whether she, grows to love the game as you do or not, she's still getting an opportunity to see her parents do something that they're passionate about, right? And that they love and that has a positive impact on others. So that alone is, is great. Um, and speaking on family, you know, your dad actually plays a coaching role on your staff at Queen's as well, which I think is awesome. Uh, and what a cool, unique experience. What has that experience been like? for the two of you.
1: Uh, fantastic. I, I Again, so, so lucky to have that opportunity. He's always been there to, to support whatever I was doing, whether it be in law or, or hockey. But uh, they, they they were in Pembroke and then moved to Kingston uh, eight or nine years ago. And, you know, he, he's taken on kind of a hybrid scouting assistant coach type role he, he's one he's basically our head scout uh, other than myself and uh, he's also been an evaluator with the Ontario uh, uh, Women's uh, Hockey Association and so his, his skills in that area are really really good he's been on the bench for w- with me for a few exhibition games which has just been absolutely tremendous um, and then he's traveled on some road trips and watches from the stands and gives advice and uh, so it's it's just been tremendous to be able to, to talk to him about the current team, about our incoming recruits. He, he's well-versed in the other players on the in, on the league and, and knows the other coaches as well. And and it's really, you know, it's kind of a full circle in terms of our own personal hockey relationship, right? The the student becomes the master or whatever the phrase is, right? So I'm really lucky. And, and my sister's husband, my brother-in-law, is also one of our scouts in the GTA. So we're keeping it in the family. And, and uh, again, just another example of just how important that is. And uh, the players get to see that front and center.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Well, and I guess this might be a good follow-up question, but we talk a lot about mentorship, right? Like it's really important as a coach to have mentorship along your coaching journey. It's invaluable to our growth and our continued development. Are there any particular people, I'm assuming maybe your dad's one of the people on that list, but, but particular people in your coaching journey that have had a substantial impact on your career? you know, maybe like a story or an example of something that they said or did that that resonated with you and and stuck with you. Because I think sometimes the other part of this is, you know, when we think of mentors, we think someone that just provides this, you know, giant speech that's like rah, rah. And it's, you know, it it doesn't have to be like this epic act or, or thing that they did. Sometimes it's just, you know, something they told you when you needed to hear it the most or something that they did for you when it mattered the most.
1: I've, I've, I'm so fortunate to have tons. I don't know if we have enough time to name everybody, to be honest with you. I, I, uh, I think I've got a few of the classic mentors, and I'd put my dad in that category, sort of the, uh, the, the sage, older advisor type of a scenario. I'd put uh, Dave Wilson is a former women's basketball coach at Queen's, and he was he was here for 35 plus years. And uh, so different sport, but a female a male coaching a female sport, and he had seen it all by then. And um, and then also at Queen's, uh, Harold Parsons and Janine Sargent were there when I started out. But to be honest with you, there's, there's not that many of that category in Kingston. We're a smaller community. There's not, you know, the the, the circle of people who have coached women's hockey is extremely small, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so, you know, I, I spent a lot of time just doing a lot of trial and error on my own, just just trying things out and, and hoping that it worked and trusting my gut. Uh, but I've also been forced because of that to actively seek people out. And so... Um, a few years ago, we were lucky enough to get Wally Kozak, who's who's been involved in the women's game for years and years and years. He's out of Calgary. Mm-hmm. He flew from Calgary to Kingston, and basically, was on my hip for an entire week. So he saw a week that was, and and pulled back the curtain, and and uh, that was outstanding for me. It was really, really good, and. Yeah. Uh, a lot of, lot of reinforcement, but also a lot of really great constructive criticism and feedback that, that I needed to hear. And I, I just didn't know. There were just things I didn't know or blind spots I had, and, and he, he shone a light in them. So that was, that was great. You know, I I was lucky early on to have a few coaches in the women's game, uh, Peter Smith, Les Lawton, Howie Draper, who had been at it for a while. And they were very, all three of them were very accommodating, eager to talk, uh, encouraging. And then also just even within the OUA, we are really, really fortunate. And you've had a few of them on your show already. I can't speak highly enough about the the group of coaches we've had and, and currently have in the OUA. And, you know, we can reach out at any time. And talk to each other, and and we'll 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 duke it out when the pucks drop. But the, the respect and the professionalism is, is unreal. And I'll you know give shout outs to to a few that I've been around with for the last ten years. There's Dan Church and Rachel Flanagan, Lisa Haley, Sean Reagan, and there's others, obviously. But but that's been you know it's mentorship, but it's it's kind of a mutual mentorship if you can call it that. Um, mm-hmm. Brett Gibson is the men's hockey coach here at Queens, and he's been at it for as long as I have too. So I certainly rely on him. For for some support, and he's a great guy. Spent time at Hockey Canada, so I'll throw Mel Davidson there, and and uh, spent time with the OWHA. and I've learned a lot through them as well. And and then you know I, I learned from my assistant coaches right right now. Morgan, Jamie, and Mike are my assistant coaches, and I I learn from them every day. And you know, but I also do search out external sources. So I'm a voracious reader. I'll learn. I'll read about Wooden and Dorrance and anyone else. I, I just finished Sammy Joe Small's recent book and. Love that. And uh, um, I'm getting involved in Zoom chat groups with coaches from around the world just to try to learn more. And, uh, you know, in terms of a quote, um, you know, there's something that Wally said. He gave me a lot of great advice, but the one that just always stuck with me was, Matt, just make sure you coach the right way. And uh, it's such a simple phrase but it was sort of, you know, he said it sort of when I was down near the bottom of that sine wave I was describing earlier, and, uh, and I needed to hear it, right? I needed to, I needed to re- be reminded of that, and that, you know, taking the character values-based ba- approach is the way to do it. Don't get sucked into the, you know, the winning is everything and the only thing sort of approach. So coach the right way was, uh, has, has always stuck with me.
0: That's awesome. Well, I mean, one thing your answer really highlights for me, which I don't think is talked about enough, is the fact that, you know, I think sometimes there's this perception that mentorship happens when someone is magically dropped into our lives to guide us and mentor us and and give us the answers we need. But like you said, like it's the the ability to proactively seek out guidance and mentorship from people that maybe have more experience than you or different experience than you or different perspectives than you. Like there's so much there. And I think now with our access to technology and networking, there are so many opportunities and avenues for coaches to proactively seek that mentorship and guidance and get it. And I mean, obviously, you know, your your record and, and your reputation speaks for itself. And a big part of that is because you were proactively seeking to get better, you know, and, and look for people that can help you do that.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a huge part of it. I think you you've got to, you know, admit that you don't know it all. Uh, check your ego at the door and and uh, seek out. And I, you know, again, it's cliche, but I think the day that I think to myself or say to anybody that I know it all is the day I should hang it up. So
0: absolutely, it's a very very true statement. All right. So what about the flip side of that? I mean, we know um, we look to have mentors have a positive impact on us as coaches. We hope to have a positive impact on our players, but conversely, players can also have a lasting impact on us are there any particular players that you've worked with or any particular experiences you've had with your players that have really resonated or stuck with you
1: uh, every day? I want to say it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's like every day with my daughter in a way too, right? It's, it's, there's always something new and sometimes it's, it's joyous and wonderful. And sometimes it's a challenge. So I'm, I am constantly learning from them. I need to, I need, I need to, you know, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll mention Morgan McAfee. So she was a player with me. So she was a rookie in my first year as a head coach. So wow. we spent five years together in a coach-player relationship. And then um, she has now been an assistant coach with us for the last five years. So of the last 12 years as head coach, she's been with me in some form for the last 10. And wow. and every time we chat, I learn something from her. And I, I mean, the amount uh, of credit that I give to her directly for the success of this program on and off the ice, I, I can't speak highly enough about about her and how she has helped my career and, and helped the program. You know, I I am I, thankful for a lot of players when I was wondering about whether to take leave the law and take this over full time. And, and I a lot of players at that point encouraged me to do so. And that was extremely, extremely helpful and, and very humbling. You know, every year I, I sit down with our graduating players and I ask them for some constructive criticism. Um, I kind of try to squeeze it out of them because players give you feedback when they're with you. And they will be honest, but when you remove that, that specter of ice time and roll and whatnot, and, and they you take the shackles off and you buy them a lunch, they, uh, <laughs> they will, they will tell you, right. And, and that yeah. honestly, those, some of those conversations have been the most significant in, in my entire coaching career. And, and you, mm-hmm. I learned stuff that, uh, you know, you wish you would have known earlier, but at least you're, you're getting a, a piece of it, but I'll give you two examples. And again, this is, these were sort of signposts for me. And, and again, sort of towards the bottom of that sine wave, there was one athlete, uh, w- whenever we would have player coach meetings, she seemed fine, you know, no major questions, seemed to understand her role. But then in one team meeting, so with the whole team there, she she is sort of had a, a very emotional, you know, everything just sort of spewed out at once and a lot of tears. Um, she, she felt she wasn't being valued. She felt she was scared to make a mistake on the ice. And, uh, and she was right even though that was never my intention ever 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 my intention and it honestly it shook me to the core it, it was it was one of the most emotional moments in my entire coaching career and for for her to lay, lay herself bare to me uh is one thing and then in front of the team was was another and and uh and then around the same time maybe a little bit later um there was a rookie who had came to me after a couple months with the team and she just felt that she wasn't connected to her teammates and wasn't you know and it wasn't anything she had done it just there wasn't a lot of effort being made to sort of connect with the rookies and uh, and I and honestly I never would have heard that from any of my rookies during the first five years. And so, you know, when I when I talked earlier about some self-reflection that I did about what I was doing or not doing and how I had changed or how I had gotten away to some of my values, those two moments were were signposts, were were proof that okay, there's there's something that's changing here and 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 we're going, maybe we're going in the wrong direction. Right. And, and so those were tough to hear, but I'm so glad, I'm so glad that those players had the courage to, to talk to me. Like that was the litmus test. We needed to hear that. Our, our, our culture was speaking back to me, right. And was ringing the bell or, or whatever you want to say. And so, you know, that uh, or another analogy that that was the guardrail, right. The car was veering towards the ditch and those types, my self-reflection, but those types of conversations were the guardrails that kept us, you know from going straying further so I have vowed to never let you know as much as I can you know let my relationships with the team or individual players you know get to that point again and and we're not perfect but it certainly it certainly did you know shine a light on it so you know again you know thankfully there's the majority of interactions with the players are, are positive they're happy they're joyful they're they're passionate And those are all very important. They keep me around, but, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, you you do need those tough ones from the players and you need to learn those. You can't just dismiss those. You can't say that she's, she's out to lunch. She doesn't know what she's talking about. Like those are real, real emotions and, uh, they need to be, you know, seriously considered. So,
0: yeah. Oh, no question. Right. And I think there's two parts to that, right? It's because you're right. I think often as a coach, if you're dealing with a team of, let's say like 25 players and two are expressing so much discontent and they're upset and like, they're emotionally not happy. Some coaches, it's really easy to justify as well. The other 23 are doing fine. You know, like I'm doing great because 23 are great, but the whole goal is to have a team, right? The team is a family and the family's only as strong as all of it's all of its parts, right. That make up the unit. So there's that, but then there's also like, I'd be interested to know how often do you meet or do you connect with your players? Because I think it's probably so important that that consistency of touch points and communication, right. Because I think as much as possible, you want communication to be like a proactive versus a reactive thing. Like you don't want to give a player that much time to have emotions like fester under the surface so that they come out that way. Just, I guess, what is your approach to communicating with your players? Because, I mean, as someone who's been in it for this long, you know, it is such an important part of your job to to connect with the players and to talk with them and give them a, a floor to express their own voice.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, and and obviously, this past year has been very different. So, I'll, I'll. But at the same time, there's a lot of things that have come out of this this past year that I think will allow me to connect more with the athletes. Now, the same, I'm not going to be you know, I, I think you've got to live, let them live their lives and realize that there's more than just outside of hockey. They've got their own personal relationships and, and school and family and whatnot. But I think, I think the, the ease with which we can connect now through Zoom and other mediums will allow me to connect with them a little bit more without, without I'll say, taking up any more of their time. I mean, for them to, to leave their apartment in mm-hmm. Kingston and walk to my office you know, and then leave. You're adding just another hour in their day just to connect with them, right? So I think yeah. I think that's a good thing. So I think that'll that'll improve the number of touch points. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and, and times are changing. You know, in the last few years, we've got things like the rule of two and other interpersonal communication policies that are coming up for mm-hmm. the right reasons. Um, mm-hmm. They're there because there have been some bad apples that have kind of spoiled it for the rest of us. But I yeah. I fully fully support. The protection of both the player and the coach in in certain vulnerable situations, absolutely, hundred percent, hundred percent. But it it is it is a bit of a, a communication minefield right now in terms of uh, yeah. in terms of you know staying connected with your athlete and building that relationship and that connection and that trust, but also obviously respecting you know these these new policies that have arisen. So I think that early on, uh, I, I'd say I was quite connected with the athletes. I think that uh, I had a period of time. Consciously or subconsciously, where I kind of distanced myself a little bit under the mistaken belief that that's kind of what I needed to do to make some tough decisions. And I've swung back the pendulum the other way. And again, subject to some of those policies, trying my best to connect as much as possible. I mean, you know, we have three or four formal hour plus long meetings with each player about goals and and their individual performance plans and whatnot every year. But certainly doing my best uh, once the season gets going to have more informal touch points with the players. Try, try my best every day that we're together to at least say hi, if nothing else, but mm-hmm. to to have more than just a hi at least once a week and uh, and just stay connected.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you touched on this. So, I mean, one good thing to come out of COVID, I suppose, is, like you said, the the realization that we can connect virtually. We can be face-to-face and have a conversation and kind of get rid of some of that transit to and from the office or the rank which is great but aside from that I guess just how has the experience of COVID been for you and your program and I guess even on a personal level like what have you learned about yourself as you've navigated the challenges that it's presented
1: sure you know I I, I do hope it, it is it has made me a better coach um I guess we'll see um once we sort of return to a quote-unquote norm normalcy but I think that it is uh shone a light on on ensuring that that you have that perspective i think that uh you know we did a lot of team exercises uh last fall and they were really focused around gratitude and and finding those silver linings Mm -hmm. and and what things over the course of you know the summer are you grateful for and and almost unanimously the players were well just time with family and um so we we made sure throughout the pandemic um you know as a team we we stayed in touch and connected at least once a week uh, by Zoom. And we just did our best to practice gratitude. And so some of them had journals, some of them just did it internally. But um, I'm hoping that that tradition continues and that we've got that perspective and that balance and and uh, that ability to to stay grounded and, and grateful for the important things that do exist in our lives. Because once once the whole world starts spinning again, a, mile, a million miles an hour, it sometimes gets easy to forget about those things um i, I think i'm hoping that it, again like we just talked about that it'll give me an opportunity to, to know the players a bit better I, I felt certainly in the last eight months i've gotten to know my players better in the last eight months even though i haven't seen them personally that much than i did in the previous two years because we've stayed connected and we've just I mean, we've talked a little bit about hockey but we've just talked about other stuff now so
0: yeah i mean it certainly reshaped your role as a coach right like i think it's easy for your time and energy to get consumed in you know planning practices, running practices, doing pre-scouts, meeting with players about playing time, all of that stuff that usually takes up our time. It really has created that space for, you know, you to have a conversation with athletes and just make sure they're okay. kind of be like an external support uh, system for them, which I believe when we get back to things will have strengthened that relationship and hopefully, you know, positively impact the performance on the ice as well.
1: Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I, I felt like I was back to coaching in my first year. Like he threw out everything I would learned from the previous almost 30 years of coaching, I suppose. And then, and, and cause this was all new, there was no playbook for this at all. Yeah. And there were, there were zoom meetings that I prepared, but it was all just, let's try this. Let's see if mm-hmm. this works. And, uh, you know, I, I give, I give so much credit to the players. They're so resilient and they, uh, they, they were great. And clearly a few things that I was trying, uh, okay. All right. That didn't work Let's try this. And, yeah. and well, they gave the feedback, but they, they were happy just to be together and trying some things. Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, they, they kept me energized, you know, just as much, uh, and, and strong just as much as I was trying to, to keep them.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's great. Okay. So I guess two more questions here for you. This one, I'm going to kind of tie two things together, but I always want to make a bit of space to talk with coaches about the challenges of work-life balance and self-care as a coach. I think when you're in it and when you're in it because you care and you're so passionate about it, it's easy for the profession to kind of consume us, right? It's easy for it to be like a a a seven-day-a-week, you know, more than 12 hours a day type of job if we allow it to be. And because we care so much about the development and the growth of our athletes in our program, sometimes that comes at the expense of like our own self-care, our own development, or maybe the the needs of our family. I hate to say it, but it's kind of this big juggling act. Like what has the experience been like for you as someone who's now been in the profession for a decade and a half, right? Have there been any challenges that you've faced or maybe things that you've kind of adopted over time to help keep things in check and help feel like, you know, you're, you're good. You're good in all of the facets that you need to be.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a great question. It's so important. You know, I, I think I learned fairly early on when I was a busy lawyer to try to develop some good time management skills. I think that's, that's just critical. I think like most coaches were very competitive. We're very driven. Uh, we want to be the best for ourselves, for our program, for our athletes. And uh, if there were 25 hours in a day, we, we take it. Right. And so, you know, I, you know, about three or four years ago, You know, now I've got a three or four year old and also coaching full time. And I was starting to struggle a bit internally with not being able to spend 110 percent coaching and with family. And then for me. Right. So those are, you know, that's adding up to 330 percent. And how does that work? Right. So um, so I I give all the credit to my to my wife for helping me with that, for uh, very politely sort of calling me out, um, but also supporting me and insisting that I remember, you know, to take time for myself. And I remember a couple of years ago, we did an exercise with the, with a team. It was a sort of a a psychological profile that each player could do for themselves. And, um, it categorized you and gave you a whole bunch of information about yourself to help you with some self-care and whatnot. And, And the coaches did it as well. And mine came back with a very interesting result. It, uh, it said, you are highly extroverted and highly introverted. And so I went to the, you know, the person who ran the test and I said, how, ca- how can this be? I always yeah. figured I was sort of somewhere in the middle. And, uh, and they said, no, 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 people always assume that it's a continuum. In fact, they are separate and you, you can be actually highly extroverted and highly introverted at the same time. You, you, you need to seek out social interaction and be in an environment at work or otherwise where you're, you're around people. But you also need those moments where you, it's just you and you need to recognize when those moments are. And I'll never forget that. I i, I said, oh, okay, that actually makes sense to me. And I came home and I explained that to my wife and she goes, well, that explains everything like that. It was sort of a light was shining on, on my personality. And so mm-hmm. I think it's, I mean, not everyone's fortunate enough to have maybe that sort of aha moment, but um, I think it's important to at least try to do some self-reflection and remember that. I want to lead by example and so your your health and your relationships if I'm going to be saying to the the team your health, your family, your relationships are, are the most important things, then then I've got to lead by example. Right. And so they can't see me burning out and, and whatever. So I think I think as a coach, if you want to be a high performance coach, you do have to make some choices. But there needs to be balance. And and it's it's about I'll say trimming the fat or making sacrificing some things around the perimeter. So maybe you tighten your circle of friends, maybe you binge west, binge, watch a few less shows. Yeah. Um really focus into the middle, the the, the core, your rock, your your North Star, your family where you get your strength and, and your support and, um, and your source of joy. And, and it, it can, it can happen, but in terms of the self-care, absolutely find time for yourself. It doesn't have to be and you're in the gym every day, but the exercise part is so important, you know, a, a good diet and and getting the sleep. And again, it's leading by example. If, if I'm going to stand up in front of a room in every September and say to the players, Hey, you know, you've got to go hard in the weight room. You've, you've got to have a solid high performance diet and you've got to sleep. Then, you know, I can't be walking in with a Big Mac and bags under my eyes, right? So it's, but it's also, and I think now yeah. I'm the father as well. I think that that you know, I want to be there for for the team, but I want to be there for my daughter for years and years and years, and, years and um, I'm not getting any younger. So, and then you know, hobbies. I think the COVID's been great. I, I picked up the guitar again for the first time in 20 years. I
0: nice.
1: One of the, uh, I'm not gonna play anything for you right now, but one of the. No. uh, hoping oh,
0: so <laughs> you play the outro song soon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: um and then again when one of when my when my parents moved to kingston one of the things my dad brought with them was an outstanding vinyl collection and so i've i've taken that over to my place and and i've started to grow that as well and get a bit more old school with that so um you know just to find little hobbies like that i think for yourself is is extremely important
0: definitely vinyls well vinyls are back in they're not old school anymore they're like yeah They've been, yeah. they've been recreated as new school, I guess. So that's <laughs> awesome. But yeah, you're right. Like, cause I think, you know, you say that you're doing that now, but then I think for some coaches it's overwhelming because when things pick up again and you're actually in season and your workload ramps up again, do you foresee the ability to like, you know, sit down with your guitar and, and go through the vinyls and hopefully, you know, a lot of coaches will look at that and be like, yeah, you know what, that was something that energized me and reinvigorated me and, and gave me a break, like a mental break from, you know, always thinking and processing, you know, team related stuff. So hopefully we're able to still continue with some of that, uh, as we make the transition back, but You're right. Because I mean, you're not only a coach, you're a parent, you know, you're your own person. And to be your best, there's a lot of different things that need a lot of different buckets that need to be filled, so to speak.
1: Right. And it's it's as you know, you preach as a coach, it's it's all about habits, right? And so if you start sometimes starting with a habit, it's it's tough, and it takes a little bit of perseverance. But then once you start doing it, You almost do it unconsciously at that point. Right. And it just becomes part of your 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 life, your routine and uh, you're on your way. So I think that's that's the first step is to get out and start doing it. And then once it's developed into a, a habit, then you're in a good place.
0: Yeah. And I think also, like, again, coaches, we can kind of be all or nothing sometimes in our approach to things. It's understanding that that habit can be something that's really small, like it doesn't have to be big. Right. Like even if you're trying to create a new workout habit, it's not, you know, get into the gym and lift weights for an hour like you did when you were 20. It's like walk around the block twice a day, you know, like make that your break and start small and then you can build bigger. But no one ever starts really big and then scales it down, you know?
1: Well, I mean, a great, I think, habit for anyone listening would be to listen to the Coach 2.0 podcast and go for a walk around the block.
0: Well, that is a great plug. Thank you, Matt. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh! Okay, so one more question to wrap up here. If you could go back in time to your first year of coaching and tell yourself one thing, what would it be, and why?
1: Yeah, I'll, I would. I'd probably quote Wally again and and say, "Coach the right way." You know, take that values and character based approach. Let the passion f- fuel you, but take that values and character based approach and and put the relationships, so the the players' um, relationship with each other and your relationship with the players, um, at the forefront. The values, be committed, be caring, be communicative, build confidence, continue to work on your competence on the way, but those core values have got to be the driver. And, and then stick to that, no matter what anyone tells you or any self-doubt that might creep in or regardless what the wins and losses are, stick to that and, and you'll be happier and more enriched and you will increase your chances and your players' chances of, of being your best selves. By, by taking that approach. And honestly, that is the true definition of success. I mean, regardless of whether you win or lose, if you can all look at each other and then look internally and say, we were the best versions of ourselves and as a team, um, regardless of when your season ends, then that that is true success. And, and here's the funny thing, and I've learned this, is that if you can reach that point, I truly believe that you'll also maximize your chances of winning a few games on the ice as well. Like, I think that mm-hmm. that will be a natural byproduct of reaching that other that other state.
0: Yeah, no question. Well, I think the Leafs need to uh, need to get you in to speak to the team on that front.
1: No, I I, uh, I love I appreciate that. And uh, I, I love coaching the women's side way too much to to worry about any of any of that over there.
0: But. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I mean, this has been amazing. I've always respected you as a coach and I really appreciate having the opportunity just to learn more about you and and your philosophy and your approach and wish you and the Gales nothing but the best of, of luck moving forward. Hopefully next year there is a season and uh you can move forward and kind of uh resume some sense of normalcy
1: yeah no i I really appreciate the opportunity mj this has been great i I love what you're doing for 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 coaches you know i have learned a lot listening to to your previous podcasts really enjoyed those and honestly i've learned just something about myself in the last hour and change this is this has been tremendous so uh kudos for you for for getting this up and running it's it's fantastic awesome
0: thank you so much